I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer. Welcome back to the left is dead. Um, we what an enthusiastic opening. Well, no, hey, it's an exciting <laughs> time. We are at a return to the original intent of the show. We're going to be talking to some leftists for the next couple of weeks. Right. So tonight we're starting out with uh, a friend of mine, you know, I, who I organize with around here in Detroit. Um, he's. Uh, he was an anarchist. I don't know what if or what he'd consider himself now, but we'll get into that when we start talking to him. But uh, before that, I don't know what's new, man. Um, no, not a whole lot is new. Uh, my my hip still hurts, uh, and honestly, I've been haven't really. This is kind of like the first like two day period in a while that I haven't like obsessively checked up on the news um it's kind of weird I, I almost feel like trump being president was like a like a nightmare that's like over now but at the same time now we're remembering that it's like when you wake up from a nightmare to remember that reality was worse than the nightmare and you know we still have all of these like huge scary problems and now we don't have that crutch anymore of like the, the, the scary white nationalist fascist who's, who's going to become a dictator. Now it's like, it's almost like we have to like, it, it almost feels like the tougher work is still ahead. You know what I mean? Well, one, they're not going away. And two, what do you mean? The, they, so we have to be uh, wary of what's going on, man. You know what I mean? Right. Well, you know what people keep saying? is how you know like the next trump is going to be more disciplined and efficient and uh that's true but you know like we've been arguing not arguing but we had our debates about you know what what is a more dire threat to you know um the working class um and i think you've made some good points about how you know, we, it's, it's just as big of a, a problem. And, and like you said, um, how we're, we're getting into like the original, the original theme of this show, the original idea was for us to debate leftist topics and to debunk like pseudo leftist topics. And so now we're going to go into that hardcore. And um, I feel like I'm going to learn from you. I mean, I think you're more, uh, well-read, I mean, way more well-read when it comes to uh, not only uh, the history of, of leftism, but just uh, some of the political ideologies there. And um, so, yeah, I think this is gonna be, and uh, I'll be able to educate you on um, cosmology and space and planets. Right. Well, <laughs> I wanna say that Trump is over, but, We've returned to the system that created him, man. This is a serious concern. 
the idea of a candidate who, you know, the return to normalcy candidate. When right. You see, uh, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and all, every other living president on a stage together. Uh, you know, a lot of people see, oh, these are the people who've been in charge the decades that my life has slowly been declining. So, and there's almost like a, a greater danger now of complacency, which we hit. You know, when Obama became president, we definitely hit a major period of complacency where, you know, we we kind of foolishly thought that, uh, you know, a neoliberal was just going to get into presidency and just fix all our problems and realize that uh, it goes it goes way deeper than that. Uh, it, it, it took Obama to make Trump. Well, I mean, yeah, sort of. To an ex- I mean, the, the white nationalism, I think, was a huge factor in that as well. There is that, but a few other things, too. I mean, uh, Obama's response to the financial crisis, when he had the banks in a corner and decided sure. to bail them out. And Absolutely. I think that was one of his biggest mistakes in office, was not prosecuting so I think there are people who look at these like, you know, these past, you know, establishment politicians and they see them all, the, especially when you see them all together, you see them all like at John McCain's funeral and stuff like that. Yeah, but that's, I mean, I think, I think people overplay the significance of that. that those, are, those are state functions. Of course, you're going to have all of the presidents together. It doesn't mean that everyone's sitting in a room like cutting checks to each other. You know, it's like. It's just a it's a it's a state formality. The it's fact just... of the matter is, it's well known that the most of them are friends. They belong to the same class. They they belong to the the same social circles. I mean, Jared and Ivanka went to parties with George Soros. You know, they belong in the same class. Was that when they, they were belong de- in it? Was that when they were deciding which children to uh, sacrifice to Satan? <laughs> that. That was when they were deciding like how to fuck us over the best. No, I just think that when people see that shit, they realize like, hey man, like all these people who have been the architect of all of our destruction over these years, they're all together all the time. And they say they're friends, man. They're not they're not shy about it. I think sometimes though, I don't know, that that phrase, the architects of our destruction, like I'm just Again, I like to play devil's advocate with you because you know I agree with you on pretty much everything except cryptocurrency. But yeah, the, the systems in control are definitely making our lives worse. But this is, I don't think we can distill this down to a few people or a few dozen people or even a few thousand people. This is like a very like, this is like a network of uh, competing interests in like a consensus reality that we we've we all play into this. You know, we we all play a part in in contributing to this system. That's the thing. People are seeing that all of this shit's intertwined more and more. You know what I mean? People are seeing that it's maybe it's not just a dozen people 
there's hundreds of them, but they control basically every aspect of what your life is like. They control, you know, how you live, where you live, your wage, what jobs are available. People see all of these people working together. And, you know, that's why people like the whole drain the swamp shit with Trump. But they see that there is just this group of people who are separate from them that control the majority of resources. They're not capable of saying that this is the bourgeoisie. This is the owning, you know, the ownership class because they have no class analysis. That's why you have things like QAnon. But people see all of these people together and they see that they're excluded from this, this class of people. And it, it really does drive home a point to a lot of people. I think that there's like, yeah, they're all in this together and we're not invited. It's like, it's, yeah, that sounds like that George Carlin quote, which is, it's a a big club and you ain't a part of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. I think that's maybe some Trump supporters will learn that lesson that like, hey, there's no savior, buddy. Right. They're not coming to save you. They have no interest in it. Right. Well, I think that's the greatest con. uh, I mean, uh, of the myriad of, of, problems we could talk about with Trump, the most uh, just disastrously sad part of it is that Trump could care less about any of his supporters or any of their problems. And, uh, you know, he, he would always talk about 401ks. And my, my uncle who lives in uh, Missouri, um, when I, I posted about how Trump, Trump didn't actually help business, he helped the investor class, the, the top percentage of the investor class. And my uncle was like, you know, like, you know, my, my 401k has never been higher than it was under Trump. Um, he also talked about the deficit, which of course was very easy to debunk because the deficit is higher under Trump than at any point in the past. But the, the idea of the 401ks, that, that's some of the terminology that Trump would use when campaigning uh, to try and endear himself to the working class. But the reality is, you know, your 401ks are, are not, um, you know, they're not secure and they're also like not really affected that much by tax cuts to the rich, you know? No, the thing is about a 401k is they're just garbage. They're connected to a market and you're basically bundled into a giant hedge fund. And it's an excuse to not give you a fixed pension because people used to get fixed pensions where they say, Hey, we'll give you this much money for every year you fucking work here. Right. Well, it's you know, also a way of, for the rest of your life. And it, it ensures uh, it, it's a way of hedging against a populist uprising because people are scared to lose their 401ks. And, and that was the thing, too. It was just like um, when, you know, fixed pensions disappeared, it was like hedge funds seeing like a gold mine because they saw all of this money stored in fixed pension funds. And they said, well, we can, you know, we'll double that or triple it or whatever by, you know, you invested in a 401k rather than a fixed pension. And it ended up becoming like, a, you know, it went into investments that were shit. And when the investments turned to shit, the 401k is worthless. All right. So, hey, what, so who, who's our, our guest today and what are we going to be talking about? Okay. Um, yeah. Our guest tonight is my I was, friend. I was, uh, sorry, I wasn't trying to interrupt you. I, I just, 
I just got bored of, of you, but go ahead. I don't give a shit. <laughs> anyway. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Friend of mine, Kay. Um, I don't know. He, like I said, he was a self-described anarchist when I first met him, but I think he's become um, somewhat disenfranchised with that. I'm not quite sure what his political positions are now, but uh, what I'd like to talk to him about too is he he actually has some schooling in economics. So uh, he had, you know, he posts a lot of things that interest me about like <clears throat> the COVID recovery, supposed COVID recovery and things like that. And I'd like to ask him about like what he thinks about some future economic trends following uh, the whole year of this pandemic and now the election of Joe Biden too. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And that's all. I mean, I'm excited about this because I wanted to get some, some like, you know, true leftists on here to like push past. I, I feel like like most conversations about so-called progressivism or leftism are centered around such like myopic, weird little talking points. And I, I, I think it would, it would be a service for us to like push more into some of the details and the history of this stuff. Yeah, and he was a big anarchist organizer who kind of became disenfranchised, which a lot of like, you know, more senior organizers have started to feel in the last few years, I think. So I, I, I'd like to talk to him about that because I, you know, it's happened to me to some extent. So I'd like to understand like some of the critiques he has of like, I can tell you for hours what I think like communist organizers do wrong. So I'd like to hear some of his critiques of what he thinks the anarchist movement right now could do better. You know what I mean? Oh, so he's, okay. I, so he's an anarchist. He, he was, yeah, he was like May 1st Alliance and like IWW adjacent and stuff. You typically don't seem like you like anarchism very much. No, he's my friend. It's okay. I don't know. I, I didn't say you didn't like him. I said you don't like anarchism very much. I don't. Do you, do you like him? Yeah, no, just absolutely. Just I like him. him. And we agree on a lot of stuff. But I, you know what? The thing is, I think that we both see that there's like a real pervasive influence of liberalism leaking into both Marxist and anarchist circles. Right. And I think we both, you know, we share a lot in common in realizing that those are problems tearing apart radical movements. You know what I mean? I, I think that we both realize people are joining these movements who aren't necessarily really committed to what they mean. Cool. So, yeah, let's take a quick break here and we'll get them on in a second. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's good. Let's do, you know, we got a couple weeks of leftists. I'm excited. Yeah, dude. Yeah, it's great. This week we have Kay. And next week we have Arturo, who is, you know, he was a part of the coalition that supported AMLO in Mexico when he was elected. Um, and then and then you have, have Trotskyist. Den Denish? Yeah, we have a Trotskyist who I I I you know I'm I'm friends with him on Facebook, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean we were all in like the anti-media type circle. Right. I, 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 my memory is like, I usually agree with him, but then sometimes I really disagree with him. 
I, I will tell you this. I just, we have a weird relationship. I think he's a Trotskyist bohemian and he thinks I'm like a villainous tanky, but we get along for some reason. That's the weirdest description of a problematic relationship I've ever heard. Which is, yeah, he's a little bit too much of a Trotskyist for me. Like, um, I'm a little bit more of a Leninist, and that's he's not like, serious enough, man. Yeah, Get a haircut. Yeah, that's that's what it's about. Get a haircut, put on some pants, dress dress nicely for that helicopter ride. Make us look good. That's all. No Bohemians. So we'll be back in a minute. We're back. Uh, we are with our guest Kay, and that's all you need to know about him. That's right. Um, but I will say Kay is a friend of mine and somebody that I've done organizing work with. Uh, although I am obviously a Marxist, uh, Kay, I guess you were an anarchist by your own definition when we met. Right. And yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, although I probably have moved a bit away from pure anarchism, um, and I was always pretty influenced by Marx. So, you know, I'm I'm anarchist-ish. I like how you put it in the uh, Facebook thing. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a huge thing now with like anarchism being basically post-leftism, which is a whole nother story. Yeah. But I like you because like you're an actual classical anarchist who's educated in like anarchist theory and there is anarchist theory i'm not going to be the marxist dick who says there isn't you know yeah yeah so i i will uh so just really briefly yeah i mean i i met jim uh i don't know maybe like five years ago and we were both um interested in getting involved in different ways I think uh, first meeting I, I went to with you was at a prisoner um, uh, solidarity type of meeting or something like that. Right, right. We were doing prisoner organization with the IWW. Right, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I uh, continue doing, you know, different prison organizing stuff, uh, housing justice stuff for some years. Um, also, immigration work. Uh, supporting, you know, undocumented people facing, a, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, deportation. And then, um, you know, and then also the anti-fascist movement, which probably kind of ties all this stuff together the way that I see it anyways. Um, not purely what we would just call anti-fa, but um, something a little bit deeper, a little bit more constructive. So although we did go out and just do like real, you know, anti-fa type shit, you know what I mean? But, you know, uh, and so that's, that's where I'm kind of coming from, um, been an anarchist, 
some years, like I said, I'm, I'm recently kind of moving away, but you know, like you were saying, Jim, there is some theory there. There's also um, a lot of anarchists are influenced by Marx and, you know, there's, we also draw on that and post-colonial theory. Um, and uh, some of us draw in like post-structuralism and stuff like that, which I, I think you're right. A lot of this stuff today is post-left. Um, and I think that's to our detriment, you know? Um, what, what does that mean exactly when you say post-left? Like, can you, can you define like, yeah, so what the way of anarchism are and then what, what post-left means? Right. So I think that the way I see anarchism or I had seen anarchism for a long time is uh, something that's able, you know, I mean, you've heard the old sort of uh, uh, people have repeated the definition, Greek definition of anarchy being no rulers. And the way that uh, classically this was seen was just kind of like, um, the only way this is possible is through organization, you know? And I feel like, like really, really um, uh, highly organized society. And I feel like the post-left has kind of taken up some, some causes that are uh, very anti-organizational, uh, very spontaneitist. Um, so. I, does organization, do you, do you kind of mean, is that, is that like a euphemism for kind of centralization when you say organization? Well, okay, so, I mean, this is complicated. I mean, in anarchist theory, there's a way of saying organization without implying centralization, and that's through uh, democratic mechanisms in the organization, how decisions are made, being directly democratic, and so forth. So there's that. Um, that isn't to say that you don't have a degree of centralization in any sort of human organization. This is part of the reason why um, I'm skeptical of some anarchist claims because uh, from my experience, there does end up being a hierarchy no matter what, whether it's formally recognized right. or not. And so it really, you know, coming to terms with that is important, I feel like, because you often do get hierarchies or centralizations that are not held accountable because they're not recognized as such. Right, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. I want to so, say I mean, that's like what I'm sorry, go on, Jim. I want to say one thing, like, yeah, one thing I really like always had in common with you is we, you know, because of how influenced you are by Marx, we agree on like an end result. Hmm. You know, we differ on a transition quite a bit right. <laughs> and how that happens. But the thing is, like, we agree on what an end result will kind of look like. And I, I'm, interested to hear you know say the idea of like marxism leninism played out to its full extent like would that look something like what you you view it would be a bet a better society in like an anarchist lens yeah i mean it's uh this is such a tough question one that i've been grappling with because it's not Nothing's obvious to me here. Uh, like, what would a Marxist-Leninist society look like to its full extent? I mean, we haven't really seen that. I mean, we could say the USSR and stuff like that. However, they're also uh, affected by, you know, the outside world, uh, certain actions. Well, I think we can recognize as being, haven't been taken because they were a poor and uh, oppressed country. You know what I mean? I mean, even 
yeah. I'm talking mostly in the early years, but you know, obviously in the Cold War, there there was some extent of that too. But um, so it's hard for me to say well, this is you know this is the question of imperialism and development and stuff like that is really where I am just really critical and still trying to work through some issues because I do think that our end goals are the same. Um, The the thing I'll say to like in defense of Soviet uh, progress is that Soviet progress was done over such a rapid period compared to like capitalist progress and like the industrial revolution and things like that, that, I think when people like measure like how brutal the rapid like change in the Soviet Union was, they miss how brutal the slow grinding change of capitalism and imperialism was over hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, I mean, to an extent, I think that there are choices that could be made one, uh, in, within a certain range, a very narrow range, honestly, especially when you're talking about development and modernization and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, like, like I said, like I feel like we do have the same end goals, and I'm not one to these days so easily dismiss the progress that was made in, uh, you know, different socialist countries. Uh, what we call ex- actually existing socialism and so forth, but um, I'm just saying it makes it hard to judge. Um, for me, when I look at and, and the USSR is kind of an exceptional example, but like when I even look at different countries that have been considered socialist, like Cuba, which I think yeah. is you know a really interesting case that has achieved a lot, right? Um, and really shows, I feel like the um some of the potential right regardless of the model i I think that it does um but again these are these are poor countries and i think that's what a lot of anarchists miss is that you don't not all the problems are because of the authoritarianism or the centralized economy or so forth right it's because a lot of them are poor oppressed exploited countries Right. And I I come back to this with China, too. I mean, China is an economic giant, but its people are poor and exploited by the world, by the U.S., by by Western Europe, I I would say, as well as by Chinese capitalists and so forth as well. But, you know, it's it's not like it's not like they're just like on the U.S.'s level, just a, you know, uh, uh, equally powerful imperial power. You know what I mean? Okay, okay. So I, I, I think we actually like, so I'm, I'm just trying to get a handle on, on your, your specific beliefs, because my, my feeling is that we're actually probably more in agreement than even me and Jim are. So, so you, you're, you're a leftist, but you lean more towards anarchism than, than socialism or you lean more towards decentralization over centralization. Am I am I correct on that? Or yeah, I think I think that's what what uh, what I what I've adhered to for a while. I I don't know right now. Like for example, even between centralization and decentralization, I wonder if this is the wrong conversation to have, and 
maybe talking more about whether politics is representational or direct or something like that. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I, we, like, yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, you mentioned being, I don't, maybe I was misinterpreting you, but it, it sounded like you were saying that maybe you, you feel a little jaded with a lot of a a anarchist sentiment in, in contemporary. And, and for me, like, I, I lean more towards anarchism, but I've, uh, there's a lot of rhetoric going around in those communities that to me, um, you know, starts to sound more like quasi-nationalism. And mm. it just generally speaking, I've never heard, I've never once heard a good explanation for how we would possibly end up with a stateless society. Mm -hmm. And so like, does it, does that like, I guess, how do you see the transitional period right now between where we are now and like where you would like us to be? Like, what are some of the specific, um, you know, deconstruction of mechanisms that you would like to see are like, like, like what, what's the most important thing to you right now in terms of how, how we would get to a society that you think is, is optimal? Like what, what's the one thing that you think is like most important? Well, so, I mean, in terms of, if we're, if we're talking about uh, the transition and the, the important milestones, I think, you know, where we probably would all agree is like, you know, you have to overthrow the capitalist class. And, you know, uh, the anarchist idea of how this would go down is not necessarily by taking over the state, uh, the capitalist state, but by producing a uh, sort of dual power situation where you have uh, a popular institution that rivals the state that is expropriating the capitalists and fighting the state at the same time. Now, this is a really um, long shot type of thing. I mean, this is something that takes a long, long time to build. And so that there's that there's, I would say there has to be revolution in some sense, and it has to be independent in some sense from the state and from political pro uh, parties. And so, you know, it would have to be uh, some sort of uh, popular institution like that. And then the second thing is that it has to implement in some way, direct democracy among the, the proletariat. So, so explain, now, there, explain to our viewers that don't understand direct democracy, like what exactly does that mean? Uh, well, it means like one person, one vote in the most literal sense that you don't vote for representatives necessarily. You could have some system of nested councils and so forth, but that the people vote on issues directly. And, you know, this also has problems and I don't claim that this is a perfect thing, but it seems to me that this is the way you make a society more responsive to its people and to not uh, produce that mediating class of representational uh, actors that sort of generalize the interests of a sort of multitude in the, in the population, a multiplicity of different interests and tries to ref, you know, reflect them through a, a sort of, um, like I said, a generalizing lens. Now there is some use for that. I don't, I don't deny that, and especially when it comes to planning. There's some use to generalizing in such ways, right. but I think you know direct democracy is the basis. And then you could have big projects that require certain expertise. You could have big projects that require certain bodies that administrate them, but that they are held accountable to 
the wider problem through a direct democracy sort of mechanism. Well, that's the thing with the, I think like democratic centralism does. And like, maybe you'll consider that just like another form of republicanism. But I think that like a vanguard party and the democratic centralism within this, that system is something that while it's not direct democracy, it is making like large decisions on a, a massive level, like take China, for instance, it is, a, is making massive decisions for like the entire population, you know? So I think that there is some value in having like these centralized groups who have control and deep knowledge of how things work and they have the ability to make rapid changes in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, uh, I wouldn't say that um, a centralized government can't act on people's demands and might be able to act with, uh, with more resolve. Um, and not, nothing says that more than the pandemic, right? I mean, this is one, this is one of the things that's really um, maybe think a lot about or like reflect on my own ideology a lot is, is the pandemic and how uh, we all sort of desired a centralized response, you know, like a lot yeah. of us did anyways, um, one, because of who has the resources to pull off an actual uh, real response to this stuff, you know? And so there's that, and, and also who has the planning uh, abilities and so forth. So, no, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think that there is a old sort of anarchist way of looking at things. So that's kind of like, well, once you create a sort of representational body, you know, then you're not only you're generalizing interests, which may have a use. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't necessarily, but you're generalizing the interests across a diverse population. But then also, you're uh, you're sort of separating yourself. You know, these representatives are they represent are they representing you? Are they representing the state? You know, I always think of Rashida Tlaib, who represented Detroit, right? In the who represents Detroit in the Congress. Yeah. But then she comes back here. Is she representing the state? Is she? You know. She doesn't do what she used to do before she was a congressperson. You know what I mean? And a lot of people would say she did more for the community before she was a congressperson. I mean, I don't know, but I, it's it's worth thinking about, anyways. I think central planning, and I'm like, I'll admit mistakes of central planning and like the Soviet Union and things like that. But I think China now, and especially with like the technological advancements we made. I think there is like a much stronger argument for central planning of key sectors of life and the mm -hmm. economy, whatever you want to call it. Right. So I, I, I you know, like I said, I, I don't disagree with you. And, and it's, it's weird to be coming on here as an anarchist and saying that, but you know, I'm kind of like uh, in limbo here. So I'll yeah. just kind of speak my mind a little bit, you know, the, the, the thinking behind, you know, the sort of classical anarchist lens is that, and this is what this is what uh, makes me a little bit skeptical, and and we can talk about this, is that like you're gonna have people, or you can have a decentralization, but um, then you're gonna have these decentralized units sort of 
in a federation, right? Uh, who are laterally related to each other in some way. And, and you have, uh, um, basically it requires a really high level of agreement and a high level, even when you think about how there was an economist named Eleanor Ostrom, who I, who I feel is very influential on me and when it comes to thinking about how decision-making should be made in an anarchist uh, society. And she wasn't an anarchist, but she had some interesting thoughts on like uh, uh, decision-making. And, you know, like if you have um, a fishery and all the, all the fishermen and, and women uh, come together and like, you know, decide on uh, who gets the fish when, for example, right? This is the sort of thing that's happened throughout history, right? And so uh, for, for hundreds of years, people have sort of uh, managed resources democratically in different situations. And so the idea is you would have units like that, that would then be federated with other units providing other sorts of goods and services, and that you would have some sort of mutual reciprocal exchange. The, you know, the only problem with all of this is that, you know, these communities have different interests, have different power in terms of resources and so on. And the level of agreement that this would require, I don't know, it gives me a little bit of pause. It makes you think that you might need something centralized to uh, yeah. impose a plan, you know? And so, and, and nothing says this more than the pandemic where if, if I, we didn't, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, Please finish. I, I, you, you, you took the thought right out of my mind. Right. I mean, if, if you have a pandemic situation, I mean, um, this is a public health issue that affects everybody, right? And so requires a high level of agreement unless it's imposed in terms of wearing masks and stuff, right? Right. Yes. So that's an issue, right? And that's an issue that anarchists have to grapple with. It's a huge issue, man. And like, I, I had a conversation, I tell this story all the time, but just because it's just so incredible to me, I, I was kind of arguing with, a, with an ANCAP on, on Facebook. And I said, so like in an anarchist society, as you envision it, like how would we possibly deal with a global pandemic? Hmm. Uh, and, and his answer was, uh, GoFundMe pages, and <laughs> it, it's it's always incredible to me. But like I, I honestly I feel like like all of your reservations about uh, anarchism are exactly what I felt. And and I like that you're getting like more detailed, like with the with the fishery example, because like I usually like kind of subscribe to um, anarcho uh, anarcho syndicalism, mm -hmm. and and but I. So I was kind of wondering if there was a kind of denomination, like it sounds like you were talking about mutualism, but like, is there kind of a denomination of, of anarchy that you, that right. you like is the, the, the way that you would see things headed? So the, the, the sort of anarchism that I had been adhering to, and I was part of a group called First of May Anarchist Alliance, and technically I guess I'm still part of it, but the group is not exact, exactly functional these days, but the, I, I really appreciate the variant of anarchism that they were trying to uh, uh, promote, which was one that was sort of multivariant or non-doctrinaire. So uh, in what's, there are situations where anarcho-syndicalism anarcho makes sense. Uh, 
for example, in industrial sort of setting or, or several other types of settings. Um, then there's other situations where anarcho-communism makes sense or in terms of tactics, right? So this diversity of tactics, diversity strategies, um, forms of organization, something that I, I support, you know? And so uh, I think that that also might be an issue. You know, you might want to have a unified approach to something. Um, but yeah, I so I guess the way that I would look at it is I'm very sort of non-doctrinaire anarchist. I have uh, some sympathies with anarcho-syndicalism, anarcho-communism. And I think that mostly I've been influenced by uh, also the, the left communist tradition and, and of course Marx and then of course um, post-colonial stuff and Cornelius Castiatis sort of uh, councilism, you know, and so there's just, I, I think that there's cynicalism and all sorts of things I, I would be down with. Um, uh, so, so one quick follow-up question and mm -hmm. then Jim ask a few questions. So because you're talking about anarcho-communism, which uh, I actually pr probably lean more in that direction myself. However, there are anytime I'm a part of like a Facebook group, like an anarchist group, there's always such vitriol from, from certain anarchists or libertarians also towards anarcho-communism saying that is essentially an oxymoron. And, 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 and it, on its face, it is an oxymoron. It's anarchy plus also total state run. So how, how do you reconcile, like what, what would anarcho-communism mean? Well, you know, the way that, uh, I, I'm not sure how everybody is uh, interpreting anarcho-communism. The way that I learned it was that it's, it's not state run, but it's um, the same way that communism, right? In, in Marxist theory, communism is a stateless, classless society, right? And of course the Marxist, uh, have a trajectory uh, to that end that includes, you know, centralization in the state and so forth. Um, and so I think the anarcho-communism or anarcho-communists are more, um, want to take a more, uh, what they believe to be a more direct approach without the state. And so that that example of the fisheries, for example, that I, that I just mentioned, and that you would have like a federation of different communities like that, I would consider that anarcho-communist, um, even though you obviously that you can have some syndicates in there, right? Or you could just replace them with communes, you know? So what, what would be the difference between a syndicate and a federation? Well, I mean, like a federation, I, I believe in, just to put it like the way that I would see it is that you would have syndicates, which are you know, unions and so on, the way that it, that is itself organized might be federated into smaller chapters that are not uh, um, subserve, uh, uh, subordinate to a central committee, but just part of a larger agreement. And then, you know, you might have several syndicates uh, in federation with each other, right? And so on and so forth. So that's the way that I kind of see it. All right, I kind of want to get moving on here. All right. Um, 
one thing I want to talk about real quick, and then I want to move on to like some economic stuff because uh, Kay actually has some education. Yeah, yeah. Unlike me. So, um, but first off, I, I want to talk about one thing that, you know, you and I have both talked about in person um, that we've been sort of disenfranchised with organizing, right? And disillusioned yeah yeah um for me personally my analysis is uh as far as marxist parties go after 2016 and uh the bernie campaign which a lot of marxists thought would be good for their parties it ended up attracting a lot of uh, liberals individualists uh you know career college students and things like that and the party quickly became watered down by like say liberal identity politics and just constant bickering over if it's okay to address struggles and things like that uh, what do you think happened to I mean, did something similar happen to the anarchist movement or like what happened that kind of just made you have to take a step back? Yeah, yeah. I mean, something definitely similar happened to the anarchist movement. I mean, I would say it happened to the left in general. It, 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 it's a, a result of our proximity to, to the liberals, our uh, de facto coalition, whether some, whether we like it or not you know, um, that, uh, we occupy the same space. Right. And, and so that, that, you know, that's been a toxic influence on the movement. I think that, uh, the identity politics, sure. Um, a lot of it, that's, uh, for sure. I think that that's part of a wider or broader issue of, uh, a real inward looking movement. One that doesn't one one that's, um, insular and exclusive. Right. And I think that that has to has a lot to do with, like you were saying, career college students and so on and so forth. Right. I mean, well, and like, uh, I, I think there's also just the element of like the corporate co-option of everything, too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's happening at the same time. And it's I mean, it's it's really it's complicated. It's, it's hard to it's hard to navigate. Um, you know, the I I think that. One of the, one problem I'll just say one problem is this insular looking. I would say it's a subcultural thing, right? And so it's not open to the masses in the way that it should be, um, and it stands too often in judgment, and it stands too often in sort of in moral judgment, right, of people. And I experienced this a lot, um, especially in like the uh, prisoner solidarity movement, um, where I saw some pretty egregious behavior by some activists towards uh, people that had just gotten out of prison but weren't totally down with all the language and all the, you know, uh, yeah. all the sort of vocabulary. You got to know all, all the correct responses. And you have to learn to talk to the working class to organize <laughs> yeah. them. It's, it's, uh, it was awful, right? And so that, that to me, I mean, was an eye opener then and it just kept on getting uh worse and worse and of course now you see it all over 
corporate America, you have these diversity trainers and so on and so forth. It's, it's just a big racket, right? But it seems like uh, there might be some sectors of the elite that find it uh, a useful tool for management of a diverse population. I mean, I'm not saying they think of it in that sort of conscious sense, but that's why it might be successful. I mean, right? it's capital, right? They're doing it because they, they think that that it will be most appealing to the largest portion of society. Right. Right. And, and you definitely see it mo- more with uh, big capital, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. petty bourgeoisie are assholes. <laughs> yeah. There's some, uh, they're like pool cleaner supply own company owners and shit. They suck. Yeah. And they don't have diversity programs. That's for sure. Diversity yeah. No, hell no. <laughs> I, I so, an optimization for a, a diversity consultant company. Yeah, that lady wrote White Guilt is making like millions of dollars right now. Mm. Yeah, there's a whole sort of performative thing. I, I think a lot of white people don't really know where they stand. A lot of white people in the movement, especially. And so they have to uh, distinguish themselves in some way by this self-flagellation. I don't know what it is. You know, I'm not white. And so it's well, always kind of weird to me, but. <laughs> I'm. This is, I don't know. Everybody's already canceled me, but I'll say that like <laughs> white people, there's a lot of white people who just like they, they, they seem to seek out an identity because they don't want to feel that they're part of like this colonizer or oppressor class mm, right? or like they find something that they can use to just say like, I am also an oppressed, you know, I'm an oppressed population. Right. And I think yeah. that's really prevalent at like college levels and stuff, and especially elite universities. Mm-hmm. Do, do you not think there's possibly maybe a good faith interpretation of that though? I mean, like, I, I, I think that there is. I, I think that it's, yeah. it's not so, uh, it's not so black and white. Um, you know, uh, there's a legitimate use of identity, identity politics. There's a legitimate place for it. I think that, um, and then also it's it's important that people identify with each other in terms of struggles they're going through. Um, but at the same time, it's a lot of it is it is just performative and uh, kind of a um, social status thing. I mean, this is one of the issues I was saying is insular. Uh, the movement's insular looking or exclusive. That is a lot of people are focused on what their place is in it, you know, and and it's like uh it's like high school i guess right i know there definitely is that element i mean i guess the good faith interpretation is that these are attempts at solidarity however Mm -hmm. sloppy and sometimes almost juvenile in in the rhetoric i there I, i guess what i'm saying is there i think there can be a good faith interpretation of identity politics and diversity activism which is this is an attempt at you know, cross-generational, cross-racial uh, solidarity. Mm-hmm. I think there's this level of, especially like middle class, you know, uh, more like light leftists who've come into this movement recently where they they have this kind of guilt and they don't want to feel it. Mm-hmm. And they find something to identify as that sort of absolves them 
of having to address what it means mm. to have their position. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think you're both you're both right. I mean, there's those are both dimensions of it. I mean, it's uh, I think generally speaking, you know, like uh, in some ways, it's done positive things for social norms of society, even though it's also had a lot of very very violent pushback, you know. Um, but then there's also there's also well what we might call excesses. I mean, it's it's complicated because you know, uh, it's it's a it, it very very soon becomes a sort of what what Nietzsche used to call like a movement based on resentment or resentment. Like it's nice. uh, it's inward looking and it in some ways values some very counterproductive uh, uh, what do you call it measures? I guess I don't know, but uh, at the same time, it's like how do you how do you deal with white supremacy in the movement and how do you deal with um how, how do white people deal with white guilt I, I it's a terrible uh um thing I to think, focus on you know but um, yeah but i think the thing is, is like that you met, uh, but just the fact that you mentioned that there's such violent pushback against it. I, I think that says a lot about about what it is, which is, you know, the, the fact that Black Lives Matter, for example, is a movement is such a stigmatizing, triggering uh, thing for conservative, for white conservatives. I think, you know, the, yes, it is overwrought at times and probably not it should be more politically calculated, strategically calculated. But the fact that we're still even having to, you know, present the virtues of diversity uh, with, with the thing is, pushback. Dude, the thing is to me is, here's the toxicity of neoliberalism. It absorbs all of it. It sucks up Black Lives Matter. It makes it an NGO. It makes the women's movement an NGO that's international, any type of resistance to this system, you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with capitalist realism, but any type of resistance or like rebellious subculture that can be subsumed by capitalism is that's what mm -hmm. that's like the biggest danger of neoliberalism is it literally sucks up everything and commercializes it and totally defangs it. And that, that's, that's like saying that, that gay people that get married are participating in a unjust system just because they want the same benefits. That's uh, not the same. Yes, it is. It, it is the same because when you talk about social movements. I'm talking about like when I get a Wells Fargo ad telling me they care about black people. Like that is yeah, just who cares? That that's what, this what, is a, what a trivial thing to focus on. Social they, movements and they, they want to subsume them and just make them basically toothless. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, toothless though. Like the, the, the Black Lives Matter has an incredible influence on society. I don't, how can you possibly deny that? And yet, in the mind of the reactionary, it's connected to the NGO and what all their big donors. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes in it goes in different directions. I think the challenge is like I was even thinking about this with feminism some years ago. Of you know, while the um, 
Clinton campaign was going on. And you saw that sort of thing that James is talking about in, in full force. And, you know, it, there is a, we have a responsibility to some extent to try to keep claiming feminism, right? Feminism is not what Nike or Clinton or eBay or whatever, you know, these companies, what they say it is, right? It's like, um, it's, you know, what you're saying, Jim, it's right. It's hard though, right? Because then you can't give up on Black Lives Matter, right? But you're, no. you're, you're up against a humongous machine. It's that's... just naive to think these corporations care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, it, it, they don't even have to care. That, that's not even so much the issue as to whether this is a genuine solidarity on the part of corporations. The fact is <laughs> they wield tremendous influence. Banks that won't even open branches in Black neighborhoods telling me Black Lives Matter. Yeah, no, well, that's, 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 that's an extreme example that is definitely worth noting. But I'm saying we live in a consumer society right now. So like consumer entities that turn against corrupt causes while they themselves are compromised in many ways, it still matters when you have, for example, we have these big tech companies that are turning their backs on white nationalists. Now this is, that's- And also banning leftists. Yes, it's complicated for many reasons. And yes, are there, there are dual parallel narratives playing out. But at the same time, I do think there is utility in turning corporations against white nationalism. Hmm. Weaponizing. I, I think it's opportunism. It, uh, yeah, I, I can't help but just think that it's both. I mean, it's... Thank you. It's, it, it's, 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 uh, it's hard. I mean... It is a weird thing, and maybe we should talk about it. I mean, we already have been, but there's this strange alignment of the super big capital and social movements against the petty bourgeois. You know, I mean, it's kind of strange when it comes to BLM. When it comes and and it and it, it the thing is, it doesn't it doesn't uh, take away from from the actual cause and the actual issues but there it does it does mess up the narrative and that does have huge consequences but at the same time we aren't in control of what a a corporation decides to push out in its commercials for black lives matter or whatever so it's like a difficult thing that we have to come to terms with and and learn how to navigate I, i i don't know if there's an answer to that yet um well, I don't, well said, man. Well said. Yeah, I don't know that I, I don't want to be in control of it. I just, I'm, I'm disappointed by how many people will buy into it mm-hmm. is my main problem. Yeah. But before we keep you too long, um, I want to get you on like some shit you actually know about. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, you've obviously, you've known about everything you've talked about tonight, but I, something that like a lot of uh, people in our circles aren't quite as familiar with as you which is actual like economic like macroeconomics you know Mm -hmm. so um i don't even know where to start obviously because 2020 was a year of like a completely faux market (laughs) you know yeah i mean it's uh it's a, it's it's a crazy thing you know i i feel like there were a lot of marxists especially people like michael roberts um 
maybe Anwar Shaikh, maybe some others who predicted a crisis this year, but not based on a pandemic, obviously, or, or last right. year, I mean. Um, uh, but they were predicting some sort of crisis and, you know, um, and it was the pandemic that was a trigger. A lot of people thought it was going to be the trade war or something. Um, but yeah, it's a very strange sort of crisis. It's one that, you know, like, uh, is exogenous. So it comes from what we think is the outside, which really, I mean, if you think about COVID and capitalism and, you know, the results of climate change and so forth and, and how, how something like, and, and factory farming and how something like COVID and how that might come about, it's not exogenous to capitalism itself, but it is sort of like something from the outside of the market has come in and messed things up, right? Like right. supremely, which is different from like the normal uh, uh, interpretation of crisis from say Marxists who see uh, periodic crises as uh, part of the internal dynamics of capitalism, right? And so this is a, a strange one. It, it may have just occurred at the same t uh, at, at uh, the same time everybody was gonna predict a crisis. I mean, lots of people thought that we were in a bubble already and it burst and maybe it did. Uh, I thought at the beginning, maybe it was gonna help it burst um, but in fact, there are huge bubbles right now, uh, especially in technology, the, the tech sector, especially in housing, I think yeah. enormous bubbles. I mean, ones that maybe we haven't seen, uh, the likeness of, uh, ever, um, especially when it comes to tech. I mean, think about Tesla, <laughs> think about all these, uh, uh, billionaires that like doubled their income or something, you know what I mean? Like over the course of a year and you see uh, investments in uh, companies like Lyft or Uber technologies or uh, CrowdStrike and so forth that all have, um, that aren't profitable. They're right. still in a phase, Yeah, like a lot of tech companies where they're trying to eat up market share, like how Amazon sort of uh, strategy was. Let's go on. Yeah, the, the gig share thing is is also important. I was actually just talking about this earlier, but the, the the way that companies like Uber and Lyft have kind of been inoculated from normal mm. like union processes. Oh yeah, I mean that that is absolutely true. I mean that they are extremely exploitative, um, but also they're they're uh, there's a lot of tech companies out there that are sort of trying to undercut each other in terms of pricing and not making a profit. Uh, but are still valued. Their their shares are still valued very highly because they're being measured upon different um, different criteria than what you might measure a, a company outside the tech sector. So that um, that's my big question as a dumbass man. Like with all these people unemployed, with people losing their homes, with people without insurance, with people with nowhere to go, how is this like being made to look? Mm -hmm. it's okay yeah I, I think that um there's a split right in the economy in terms of class where there is certain classes that are not just doing well but are doing very well actually um and have seen the uh benefits of when for example when the lockdown lifted temporarily in the summer there was huge growth in certain sectors right um and then a lot of these people can work from home and you know, and there's there's also things that the government has done, right? 
stimulus checks and uh, better unemployment benefits for some time um, did help raise consumption. And it's really interesting that um, poverty actually went down in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Based on the based on the government uh, assistance, which is like, oh yeah, why have why aren't we always doing this? It's yeah, really I risk for a minute, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and you know, but at at the same time, um, they also were doing stuff like uh, keeping the rates, the uh, federal uh, interest rates, low, and this was fueling a housing market, uh, a hot ho- housing market, right? which is uh, people are doing refinances and buying and, and the prices of houses are going way up, skyrocketing really right now. And uh, it seems like a bubble to me. I mean, you you don't uh, have a low interest rate like this in a healthy situation. You know what I mean? You do it when, you ha- when you're like trying to squeeze out some sort of growth, you know? Yeah. Overall kind of unproductive system. And like you said, tech is a really big one too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's built a, a, around like spec speculation and right. a lot of um, companies promising products that they, it clearly can't deliver. They're not like Theranos level, level liars, <laughs> but they're close, you know, like Elon right. Musk, like looking into them, you know, you see, he's just a fraud who like buys stuff he likes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and like I was saying, like these companies are not being valued in the same way as uh, several other companies that are not tech companies are valued, which are, you're going to value a company usually on what you project their earnings to be. Right. And, uh, but if a tech company is not making a profit, okay. But it's collecting all this data on people and doesn't know what to do with it. And we'll sell it to advertisers who are advertising, but not really no one, no one has gotten the, the, the formula right here in terms of how to really make money off of that data. And what I suspect is that um, in the effort to, you know, monetize all that data that say Facebook and other companies have, um, we're going to have, they're going to become increasingly even more and more invasive, right? In terms of advertising and so on, because they have to make it work, right? Yeah. These are billions and billions of dollars at play they're being valued based on this data that they say is worth something, that which is different from, yeah, it's different from, uh, you know, if you were selling cars, you know, you don't, you know, the, the metrics that you, you'd value that company at are pretty straightforward, but right. if you're, you're not necessarily making money, but you're saying this data could provide a lot of money in terms of advertising and so on. Yeah. It's I mean, like they're that, shopping the valuation of it. They're like, Right. Like, how can we make this personal information valuable? We've got it. Right. How do we make money off of it? Right. So this is the basis, I think, of the tech bubble, which is huge right now. Right. Um, that's the basis is that the valuation is all wrong. And, you know, who knows what will happen if they pull it off? I think we're looking at a dystopian future, honestly. Yeah. If they pull, you know, because we're going to look at, they're going to become more and more invasive, and then they finally they're going to crack it, right? But I think, I think we're there. I mean, I, I think yeah. we're in that dystopian future that, right? You know, right. Even, even only thirty years ago, I don't think we could have imagined the the, the state of of surveillance capitalism that we're under. Not only that, but they've managed to crush like 
worker solidarity and totally isolate the working class. Mm. You know, they've managed to completely atomize most workers, especially like gig economy jobs and things like Uber and stuff like that. They make sure you're completely disconnected from your fellow worker. So there's absolutely no chance of like an, any type of like airing of shared grievances or organization (laughs) or uh, God forbid you get together and complain, you know, uh, you know, even Walmart will close down if they find a union card in the break room, you know, and that's just the future of trying to completely like separate us from each other too, that I see is like really pervasive and how they're trying to, how neoliberalism is just really trying to smash all of the traditional structures. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's right. At the same time, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, I I would pose a uh, an opposing trend that happens, uh, and I think what you're saying is absolutely right. But at the same time, you got the internet, which is connecting people in 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 so many ways. Right, uh, people are so closely connected, and I and I often think about this is that they're connected without community. Of course, I mean it's not like the traditional structures like you were just talking about, but it's interesting when I think of the rise of the Nazis and uh, how deep the crisis was for Hitler to rise, you know, in in Weimar, Germany, and how today we're in a crisis, and we've been in a crisis for a long time. I would say since the Great Recession, we've been in like intermittent social crisis, right? Um, But it's not, it's nothing like, you know, losing World War One and having a million percent inflation, but it's bad, right? But it doesn't have to be as bad because there's so much connectivity and people are in each other's face, you know what I mean? And so the system is so much more sensitive and so much more fragile, you know what I mean? We're not, we're not quite at the point where you can bring out a wheelbarrow full of dollars and have kids just play with it because the, the money means nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but we don't need to be, is what I'm saying. I think because everything is just so much more sensitive because we're so much more connected. You know what I mean? I, this is not an argument I've really thought about like, uh, yeah, no, it's an, it, it's a very interesting, like it, it's, you're right. It's an incredible corollary to what Jim was saying, which, which is also right. But at the same time as the power structures are doing the most they possibly can to isolate and differentiate us, mm-hmm. at the same time we have this ability to connect in a way that is completely historically unprecedented. Like, right. Chime in real quick though. I yeah. think that's under threat, man. I yeah. think that like yeah. the liberals cheering like Trump being banned don't realize like what that entails behind the Mm. scenes you know at one point this show may be under threat Mm -hmm. because of how expansive it is of course but that that's been happening since i mean since 2016 oh yeah yeah everybody's been hit as soon as hillary clinton lost there there was an outright attack on alternative media we saw we've seen people lose careers you know me and jim were part of the anti media we literally saw an entire ecosystem of of alternative media communities just essentially um, not completely shut down, but uh, demonetized. Mm. And at the same time, it's like, yeah, I, I, I was a huge critic of that and I still am and always will be. 
at the same time, it's, yeah, I, I think it's just kind of like an impossible situation right now of, of how to stop a, a global white nationalist autocratic movement that is spreading across the world. Hmm. In and my opinion, yeah. a lot of the tech should be nationalized. The right winger's opinion is like, we want better mods. <laughs> my opinion is like right. it could be like a nationalization of these things as like utilities because they are they're really most people's primary method of communication and mm -hmm. like media it, consumption jim here's my question of that though like what happens when you get an administration like trump what happens when the nationalized service is controlled by someone like Trump or even worse people like how like what is the value of nationalizing if there's a corrupt if there's corrupt national I'm not telling you to nationalize today no don't do it today by any means <laughs> well, I, I, I think that there might be a way of, of doing it to uh, which at least uh, well no I don't know I don't know <laughs> But no, no, but the time when the time is, you know, when the, the time is right or whatever, the argument is to like make these utilities. It's not to like just have better mods, you know, it's right. not tweaking this system. It's fully rebooting it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to. Uh, I was going to say, you know, maybe you could have a way of nationalizing it in which there are uh, protections formally that that are that the government can't actually moderate you know what i mean yeah um but you know i mean that could change within with a different sort of government i mean i don't know <laughs> yeah there's got to be a way to technologically if there was a way to do that you know and i'm not saying we have a bitcoin facebook or something but I mean, blockchain facebook but i don't the know entire man. world realizes we're unstable now man <laughs> so we can't really trust like continuity of anything in many ways we're like possibly a couple hundred years early on on you know I, I i think humanity is ultimately headed in some of these directions we're talking about but i i i honestly feel like we have so much like widespread trauma and pathology that i'm not sure the human race is even capable of collectivization, much less uh, decentralization to the point where we would be completely free. Like, I, I'm just not sure either of those are even palatable right now. I feel like, mm. I feel like we're, we're so, I, I personally feel like we are so far away from, you know, look, we, come on, we, we had 80 million people that, that adore Trump, mm -hmm. you know? And look, I'm not, I'm not saying that the alternative is, is necessarily that much better in terms of a structural reboot, but the fact that that many people in this country alone um, would have been so taken by, by that, I, I think is, and you know, there's a, a fair number of other people that are brainwashed by other sectors. I feel like, and, and that's why I sometimes, and, and Okay, I mean, we're, we're going to let you, we, we've already been on too long here. But. Yeah, I do want to make one more comment, but I'll let Jake finish. Well, 
you know, I, I don't want to get into agorism all of a sudden, but I, I, I do think that there is a sense in which we, we're going to have to learn to be more like self-dependent in smaller communities um, because otherwise we're so dependent on these larger national structures that they can just very easily monopolize and, and, and control us, you know? Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of going off at the bit here, but Jim, I, say your point. I think it's time for people listening to this to actually re-examine what, you know, what's considered Western liberal values. There is a spirit of collective obligation in other countries. The Soviet Union had a spirit of collective obligation China still has a spirit of collective obligation and a responsibility to the community. Cuba and Vietnam during COVID showed that they clearly have what they feel is a responsibility to the collective. Right. So I so think that is possible. It's just that capitalism, especially here, makes it very difficult to get anyone to identify with anybody else because right. this is framed as a competition. So you think there are places that have a collective, a collective will. We don't. So you think this is a uniquely American problem to a certain extent? I think it's a Protestant problem. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, uh, it might be. I, I, I do feel like, um, America being this humongous empire and uh, with the history that it has, it's, it's bound to, you know, I, I don't know if I believe in the prospect of an American revolution in the future. Yeah. And more than I think that it's more likely that we'll fragment into several pieces the way the Roman empire did. Uh, there's just a lot of social fracture um, it's, it, uh, it just seems like that right now. It seems like fragmentation is in the cards and maybe some of them will be socialist republics and maybe some of them will be anarchist, uh, com communes or something like that. Um, and then some of them will probably be extremely reactionary. Um, I'm not saying this is going to happen in the near future, but it seems like that's the, that's where we're going as America. We've always had this, uh, this individualist bullshit i mean and yeah. um and it but it's even deeper than that i mean the, the racial tensions the the different uh, uh, uh divide between rural and urban and suburban and so forth i mean it's it is uh i i, I just feel like fragmentation is is where we're gonna be at and that's why i kind of feel like maybe the anarchists do have a role to play uh in all of this, as do as do other tendencies, of course, but um, you know, so maybe some of this is like, what situation are you in? You know what I mean? What in terms of what ide ideology are you gonna uh, adopt or push forth, or what's gonna be successful? Maybe it depends on whether you're in a place that's gonna be fragmenting, or you're in a place that's going that that's uh, cohesive, or you know what I mean? I, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Who the fuck knows? <laughs> but thank you, dude. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I definitely like to have you back again to, to go more into some economic stuff too. 
Absolutely, man. Anytime. Can come back in the future. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, man. I, 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 we, we have a, I, I personally have a little bit of a disjointed method of questioning people, but I, I appreciate you keeping up with it. And I, I definitely really value your perspective on this, man. Well, I appreciate the discussion. I, uh, and uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. And we'll, yeah, we'll definitely have you again. Then took the children's bread and then give it to the dogs. Took the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Then took the children's bread and then give it to the dogs. Making so many people's lives so hard. Why those cats came fast? Alrighty. Alright. That was good, man. I had fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I, it was interesting to have a guest that. Um, yeah, he knows I mean, his shit. He knows his shit. He's also very careful with how he phrases things, and uh, he, he's very careful with how he characterizes his own positions. But uh, I, I think me and him actually see pretty eye to eye on on things but uh yeah it it was interesting well i mean i do like well shitting on anarchists is a hobby of mine but i i i have a lot in common with them because i have a lot of the same critiques of the shortcomings of trying to organize the working class you know what i mean and 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 at the same time, I also do like share a feeling with them like, hey, we have a similar end goal, but again, we have different methods of how we want to get there. You know? Yeah. I you know, I think I think uniting the left and the anarchist movement is, is pretty important. Right. And and I think a lot of the people here, you know, I'm excited for you know few upcoming guests and i think i have some ideas from some other ones but there's a lot i don't know there's a lot left is having common that we fucking brush over really easily which i think is a result of like liberalism and just neoliberal capitalism consuming all of our movements right you well, know? that's why i was trying to ask him to drill down a little bit further into certain ideas like syndicates and federations to actually try and spell out what some of this stuff means and what, what it would actually look like uh, applied to society because uh, oh. we're so we're so uh, kind of i mean for lack of a better word we're so brainwashed with the current way that things are are run here and even just in you know, across the pond, just in, in Europe, it's, it's significantly different, but even that isn't even traditional uh, leftism. Those, those are still capitalist countries. So we're, I feel like we're are so anesthetized to like what like an actual leftist movement looks like that we think that like universal healthcare is like the most crazy fucking thing ever. And it's like, that's nothing. No, I'm, de- I'm definitely going to ask him back, you know, because he's got a lot of interesting things to say. He has a lot of interesting perspectives, not just on anarchism, but also on, like I said, I, I, I really 
enjoy uh, reading his opinions on like macroeconomic stuff. He really understands like the market economy very well. And, you know, he went to school for economics and it's cool to have that knowledge in a leftist, you know, because I mean, this is after all the ideology of the people who might not know as much as they wish they did. So it's nice having him like he has a very good grasp and he's able to clearly explain a lot of like huge economic things like talking about the tech bubble with him was really cool, you know. And I think I'd like to hear more of that stuff in the future with them. Right. But next week, uh, we have, well, we'll probably do something in between then. But um, the first week of February, we will be having uh, Arturo Gall, who is a member of the Popular Socialist Party of Mexico, uh, which was in the coalition that elected AMLO. And he's also a lecturer at a a university in Germany with um, a pretty extensive knowledge of Soviet history. So I think that'll be an interesting one for you because I'd like you to get a chance to ask some questions about Soviet history because I'm an amateur man. You know, like I know a bit, but I want to get some more into like the real Soviet system and how things worked. And I know you have questions about it. Yeah, man. That's honestly, that's the main reason I'm doing this podcast is because I want to learn more about, you know, leftism. Yeah. And yeah, I will be all over the place. But yeah, I think next week will definitely be, you know, or, well, the next official episode uh in february will be will be a good one um we're gonna talk a little bit about like uh trump and mexico and what biden might mean for mexico and uh i think we should talk about what amlo has accomplished or not accomplished in his time in power because you know he was framed as a very scary choice by the media here so I'd like to hear what's, you know, what's happened since he's taken the presidency. Yeah, man, that'll be good. All right. That was a good conversation. Fun to do it again, man. And I'm going to let you go. And we right, will right. be back soon. Uh, make sure to subscribe. We're on Spotify. We are on SoundCloud. We are on iTunes. You can find us there. And we will be back. Thank you. Thanks for listening.